It's time to clip your last good piece and dig in because the runout starts now. Viet Nguyen is a climber and coder who is working on OpenBeta.io, a website with a mission to create an open source API for root and crag information around the world. All right, so let's talk about Open Beta. So Open Beta is a controversial website, I'd say, at this point, um, shrouded in uh, mystique and mystery and lawsuits. <laughs> but it's a it's basically a fairly earnest and genuine project that you've concocted, which is to make route and crag information as publicly available and open as possible. Um, so why don't you just tell us a little bit about your site, and um, and then we can get into all the reasons why people are upset about it. Yeah, in a nutshell, it's, it's a we are a nonprofit open source coding project where we uh, provide rock climbing data under an open source license for everyone to use. You can use it to build uh, weather apps, uh, which is a very popular idea or make maps of uh, climbing areas or put it in um, your next guidebooks. I think a lot of people will hear the words open source and maybe they've heard that term before, but why don't you just define what that means so people have an understanding of what, what open source route beta even looks like or what that would yeah. mean. Yeah, yeah. so open source, um, I mean, the idea was uh, borrowed from um, coding. You know, it's all started in the 80s and the 90s where... You know, we have the stone masters in climbing, and in the 80s and the 90s, we have the stone masters of coding, where they decided, you know, hey, we should get together and build something that, you know, rival the commercial product and make it available. But not only that is available for you to use for free or for a small fee, but you can, you're also able to inspect, you know, look at the source code, you know. It's like you you buy a uh, a meal carton. You you should be able to look at the the box and and read what is inside it. You know, you don't have to just drink it and hope that it's uh, it is what it is. So so the idea is you ship the product and you also allow people to look at the code and then you also allow people to take the code and change it to however however they want it. And you also allow them to further take the code and give it to someone else. So those are some of the principles of, uh, of open source. And then now people take that idea and extend it to other areas, you know, like I'm trying to extend that to climbing, where we want the climbing beta to be open in a sense that um, everyone can take the, the beta, share with their friend, or put together in a blog and share with, with their friends, or... You can put it in the guidebook, or you can put it in your next uh, weather app. You know, so you can look at. It's very popular in Portland, where I used to live. Everyone wanted to build a, a weather to see if it's dry to go out and climb or not. But when you build such app, you need a foundation to build on. You know, let's say when you when you build a, a new electric car, you know Tesla wouldn't have to go back and design a wheel all over again. You know, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's already 
be invented. So the same thing with climbing, whether you build an, uh, weather apps or you know um, the next generation, next gen uh, topo app, you need some sort of foundation to build on. You know the list of climbing areas, the GPS coordinates of you know the crag, the name of the crags, the first ascensionist, uh, the grade, things like that. And uh, we try to provide all of that to the community. So this may be a deep tangent, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you know, going back to the Stone Masters of Coding, um, all the way up to what you're trying to do, there's a big question about why. You know, we live in a capitalist society, and, and obviously, you know, creating something, you want to be paid for it, um, you know, because you have to buy food and shelter your family and things like that. So what was the impetus, do you think, around this open source movement um, and then maybe leading up to your own impetus to be spending your time here doing this, talking to us, and also spending your time creating a platform and obviously trying to source uh, financing for servers and things like that that go with this. They were yeah, stone great. masters, Chris. They were stone, coding stone masters who were just, it's all about free love and drugs and, and <laughs> give, giving away coding well, and... I sort of ask that because I, I feel like maybe it is a, it is sort of a you know not as much um, drugs and stuff, but um, well maybe speed, but anyway um, more like uh, <laughs> like you know, you know the same idea of like is this was this a rebellion was this uh, you know coming from that world? I I wouldn't be surprised the the people the, the stone master of uh, open source were the same people, you know, grew up in the same era as. You know, in the '60s, you know, the turbulent you know, years in the U.S. history. Um, I mean, it started out in academic, actually, in the East Coast at MIT, in the West Coast, at Berkeley, and I mean, university. Um, they were the people that first had fortune to access to computers back then. You know, besides military. So yeah, so I think it's every time you have a, a major force you know, overtaking an, uh, an industry is always a uh, pushback. And at the time uh, when computers are getting smaller that you can put on your desk, you have to pay an expensive license to, to run the software on it. And these people already started writing small apps just to, to share them among their friends and their colleagues. And yeah, and then the idea got bigger and bigger. And, and then one day this one student uh, Linus Torvas, I think I butchered his name. Yeah, he just uh, wrote an email, sent a zip file uh, that said, hey, I just wrote this code that's going to run on this computer. I wrote it from scratch. Uh, you can use it. Uh, if you see any problem or you want to make it better, just email me the change and then I will share it again. Yeah, and then that kind of snowballing effect. Uh, people were like, hey, what if we take this person work add more into it and um, yeah and then not only that they came up with this brilliant idea of uh, this legal framework you know they use copyright law not to protect their own interests but to make sure that the idea of, of open source keep passing on to the next generation so basically you are allowed to take the source code and do whatever you want with it even sell it but you have to make the source open to the next person. And that sort of started this whole movement. And I, I mean, I, I worked in, uh, in the industry, in the open source industry, 
in my professional life. So I, I just saw an obvious connection. You know, climbing itself is collaboration. You know, we figure we 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 stood on one, on one another's shoulder. You know, the people. Uh, they sieged El Cap. Took them months to finish the climb. You know, and then it, but it, it showed that it's in, inefficient, but it showed that that is possible. And the next generation, you know, try to do it uh, in a day, and then again they do it uh, in in less than a day, and then they freed it. So there's um there's an obvious tension here, or I see a tension in um, a couple themes around climbing information and guidebooks and beta. And there's always been this long conversation about who gets the right to publish a guidebook. And it's sort of a, an interesting discussion to have, but it kind of just seems like an arbitrary thing where someone with enough time and motivation, you know, kind of crowns himself the guidebook author of the area and they get to have a huge role and in influence in shaping the culture and the way that history is, is, um, you know, described and even down to, you know, what kind of, what the ratings are of the roots, you know, they kind of get to have the final say on a lot of that stuff. That's kind of typically the, the way that this has always been done. And there's obvious issues with that. The person who's in charge of writing the guidebook could just simply not know what they're doing, or they could not be the best person for the job. So this idea is the opposite of that. It's, it, 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 it's in a way, you know, opening up the the guidebook process to the community at large, um, which in some sense is what Mountain Project has been. Um, but I, I have concerns about how having like a truly like crowd contributed database of history and information, because there needs to be an authority of some kind mm-hmm. who is able to make informed ins- decisions around ratings, around, cre- you know, capturing the culture and history and traditions of the area and not having that loss to the whims of, of the masses. And so there's two competing threads there just in terms of how the information is, is aggregated. So I, I'm not sure if I have a question in there. I just wanted to set that up as a topic to, to get into however we can. But maybe my, my first question is just, Let's look at something like Mountain Project, which kind of is this online database of routes around the world. That, and, and I think that's the thing that most people will associate with when they when they're thinking of digital, free online guidebooks. What does open source achieve that Mountain Project doesn't? Why, why is this a? What do people not understand about what Mountain Project is that you are trying to build a parallel version of it in um, and, and achieve something different? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if I if I talk to someone who's working on open source, it would be an obvious. They would like, of course, you know that uh, we should do this the open source way. But to a to a, a climber, the crack, you know, I try to tell them, hey, I'm working on open beta. We're sharing this information, and they were like, what do you mean? I can go on Mountain Project and get everything I can I want for free. I don't have to pay for it. You know, what's the point of your project? So the most important point, as I talk to more climbers and the community, I will I will refine the message so that will make it the project more appealing to the community. On Mountain Project uh, or any other crowdsourced uh, crowdsourcing website, you're allowed to look at the content, 
and that's it. That's where your your right stop. You know, what if I what if I want to make a, a custom mini guy for my friend, my, the best five seven, you know, trad in Red Rocks? I want to take some of the data on my project and compile it. And you you cannot, you know, um, they they own the cop they they claim that they own the copyrights and only they are able to do that. You and I or anyone in the community might not be able to do that. And I thought, yeah, if you work in open source, you would. You would say that, you know, we, we don't allow this to happen in open source, you know, but somehow climbing it's, it's happening. And uh, it wasn't my intention to start open, uh, open beta. I just wanted to write some tutorial to example to show people how to, how to use uh, machine learning to, uh, to study machine learning using uh, mountain project, uh, you know, climbing information. Like for example, like um, like a Netflix-like recommendation, where, hey, if you like uh, this climb, you may also like the other climb. And then, I think what happened was uh, they shut down the public API, which uh, has a long time has been a, a really useful sources for people like myself and other computer nerds to hook into modern project database and get some information and just make our own apps. So I saw the need that, you know, it's it's time for, for climbers that we, we get together and we be the steward, you know, of this information. It doesn't mean, you know, we just want to be direct the project so that uh, it's benefit, uh, it's the climber's interest. It doesn't mean that we close the door to any commercial use. I mean, that, that's, not a, that's not the spirit of open source. Open source should allow a hobby uh, programmer to make an app or a commercial entity to to uh, capitalize on the data. Yeah, well, what you're saying right there I think is important to just linger on for a second because you're you're describing a potential future of apps that could be really useful to climbers and really unique and creative apps that we, we can't even imagine having yet. Um, and it would rely on the the open source API that you're describing creating and so the 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 potential upsides for what you're building I, I find to be just immense but hard to articulate because it, it's um two steps removed from from the the tangible effects that climbers would see yeah. on, on their phones yeah. so yeah exactly yeah can I say for example if you in, if you're in a coffee shop on TikTok you know or Instagram making a selfie. For that to happen, you need you need the infrastructure of the internet. Someone have to dig trenches to lay the cables and all this dirty work. And you don't for that for TikTok to happen, all this dirty work has to be done. It's usually unseen. So that's mm-hmm. what we're trying to do. And I also want to point out that you know we're a nonprofit project and all the source code or the data are open source. By that I mean Tomorrow, someone can take the source code that we have, all the data that we have, and build something competing with us. No problem. And that's that's the spirit of open source. Now, open beta can just go away tomorrow. I can stop paying the bills tomorrow. Um, the shell is going to be shut down. But the source code, the data, still be there for the next person to pick up. So I have some clarifying questions, uh, not just for our listeners, but for me. My background in this is, you know, reading some articles, uh, mainly Andrew's recent one and then 
uh, reading about the, the problems you had with Mountain Project in the past, um, I mean, with the owners of Mountain Project. So, I mean, what is there now? Is it, because I think people are thinking that it's just some sort of replacement for Mountain Project, but it seems to be a lot more than that and, and maybe even not that at all. Um, so what's there now to interface with if I am someone who A, wants to use it to get around or B, wants to contribute? Um, yeah, what, what is it? What's there? Yeah, I mean, first, I want to um, answer your first point. You know, we're not a replacement mm-hmm. of, we try not, we're not trying to replace Mountain Project, nor we are trying to, you know, put them out of business. You know, it's, it's quite a, it's a contrary. You know, I, I wrote on, I don't want to go back and rehash what happened two years ago, but I, I wrote on the forum at the time, you know, I, I do want Mountain Project to succeed. And, you know, I just want to access to this data and we'll help you improve it. We'll help you clean up the data. And you can put it back into Mountain Project. You know, just give us the ability to play with this data. You know, in the end, it benefits Mountain Project. And it's give people like myself, you know, um, a chance to, um, to write code. And your second question about uh, what the site does. Yeah, so right now, we, um, like I said earlier, we're doing the boring manual labor, blue-collar work, you know, laying the infrastructure. So the website, yeah, funny. Andrew compared it to uh, Tumblr. You know, it's quite an honor. I figure, you know, it's really hard to get a person to add a route or to add a description. So I figure the path of least resistance, you know, if you can add a photo of the crack that you've been to and tag it, you know, like like social media where you, when I take a photo of Chris and I tag him, instead of tag a person, you tag a climb. So it's allowed, you know, some visual to make the site look uh, pleasing when people go to the site. For example, if you go to Indian Creek now, you see a bunch of photos that I took when I was there. Or you go to Red Rocks and you see, if you see the photo, you click on the photo, it will take you to the, the climb where I took the photo, for example. And it's it just it's just some some skeleton to get to get the site started. Yeah, and I, I mean, I guess I, I want to talk a little bit about the the sort of not the open source um, idea because that seems to be specific to this this philosophy and and um, kind of legal framework around sharing code. But maybe if I frame it as sort of uh, uh, user contributed information, you know, part of me like loves that but then i've i'm and i've seen people write about this i think in the comments on on andrew's article and things part of me is like in the guidebook camp you know this this expert this person curates this thing and creates you know and makes sure that it's all correct and goes back and looks at it and really that's my like i use mountain project less and less actually than i did a while back because the clutter the misinformation, the inability to, to sort of fix things that are clearly wrong, um, the descriptions, you know, my biggest sort of, you know, hobby horse is the, um, this is two routes to the left of, of this route, and then you go to that route, and that one's two routes to the right of the other route, and, you know, I have a long-running joke that there's a key route 
that from which all of the other roots, all the t- tens of thousands, <laughs> hundreds of thousands of roots comes from. And if you can find that root, you it's like, you know, it's like the thing in the briefcase on uh, Pulp Fiction or something. It's the nose. You know, it's like the key root um, would, would be, you know, allow you to climb 516. But anyway, yeah, so I, like the, the <laughs> list or user contributed information to me, there's somewhere that it needs to be it does need to be curated, fixed, looked at, but then you've got, you know, this authority figure or this group and they need to be paid. And it's like, do you know what I mean? Like the, the, the listener contributed thing only gets me so far. So I still believe in guidebooks, um, because there's not because I like a piece of paper, you know, or I like this thing on my shelf, but because it's, it is like a, a, a um, copy edited, you know, they chased down the information they you know worked hard between several people to get it right and it's usually pretty correct um especially in modern times older guidebooks sometimes are a mess but what what do you see in terms of like the sweet spot between the two things or are you just a believer that you know enough cooks put their information in it the the correct information rises to the top I mean, a great question. I, I, I actually, in fact, I agree with uh, some of the comments on, on the blog. You know, I think it's unfortunate that it's one of the misunderstanding cool. about the project. You know, we not, it's not a dichotomy. It's not a spectator sport, you know, where you either the Red Sox or Yankees. I, I work in open source. I love building projects and sharing information. But it doesn't mean I'm, I'm not a supporter of uh, guidebooks. You know, I'm a huge fan of guidebooks. I have collected way so many books uh, back home in the States and now here in Spain. You know, so there are values in, in both of them. You know, for computer, you know, nerve people, we, you know, you cannot scan the guidebook and, and make a map. You know, it's not doable, right? So we need data that can be processed mm. by computer, right? And even though the, the location might be off, you know, 10 meters, but, you know, so what? It's not too important. You can place all the pins and kind of roughly figure out where all the cracks are in Indian Creek, for example. And then on the other hand, you know, all of that boring information, first ascension is the, the location of the wall, you know, those can be put in a website like Open Beta, and that would be your base recipes. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to tell people, despite knowing how to roast a chicken. You know, I still buy Thomas Keller books and watch a video because, you know, he's using the same recipe I can read from, from his website. Why should I, you know, buy his, his the cookbook, you know, because of the backstories, because of how he explained his process. He had not just putting salt, he had to raise his hand two feet off the, the table so the salt can like, disperse. Anyway, so yeah, so there's great values in, in, in curated guidebook, and um, I, I just want to say that I, I'm a huge supporter of guidebook. I hope that um, they will join the, the project and help us figure out a sensible solution going forward. You know, how do we balance keeping the core information in the database that allows them to focus on, you know, curating better information that will make the guidebook, you know, a unique product. People often think either or, you know, this is going to be a replacement. This I love talking in analogy, 
you know, when MP3 came about, they just, the sky is falling for the recording industry and artists, you know, but they figure something out. You know, now we love, we listen to our artists on Spotify, but then we go out of our way to go to their concert, you know. Just because we embrace uh, new technology doesn't mean we, we don't support their work. Yeah, just as um, digital books, you know, didn't mean the end of the book industry at large, it, it simply provided another revenue stream for publishers to, to sell, you know, books on Kindle. Um, I see the same thing happening. And, and I'll certainly, you know, want to fulfill, you know, fill my bookshelf with guidebooks that are beautiful and um, but I, I just see that changing. I could see the the guidebooks changing from just being strictly informational to more, I don't know, more photographic, more coffee table style guidebooks. That's a potential mm. way to balance the digital and the the printed realm, yeah, in a way that's yeah. um, that that gets people excited. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I I find a lot of those fears to be a little misplaced. You know, it's like you go in against the the current you know climbers the new generation everyone going to the crack with a mobile phone you know whether you like it or not tech startup they're going to just try to disrupt the the industry whether we like it or not mm-hmm. you know there's a there's a you know there's a market there so i mean open beta is just a small slice of this big pie and we just want to make sure that we part of this. We we want to be the steward of this, and we do welcome businesses and you know publishers and and developers to be part of this whole conversation. On on the one hand, I think of roots and root beta as kind of like road signs, like no one owns you know the name to Broadway or Main Street or whatever it is, um, and it it's clearly. Um, useful for everyone in a community to know that Broadway is located at the, this GPS coordinates and that it's, you know, X miles long and so forth. And I'm not sure exactly how, um, you know, like an open map, open source map, you know, program worked where people created all of that information and inputs. But with climbing routes, you know, the names are things that people don't really own on some level the the location of the route isn't something that someone should own it should just be one of those things where it's it's um it's open for everyone to to access but the the sense is for a lot of guidebook authors who can, who aggregate this information is they need to go out to the cliffs they need to count the number of bolts they know that there's nine bolts on and this route and seven on this one and so forth and there's a lot of work that goes into that and then there's the actual description that gets written and that feels i think i'm guessing and and surmised to a lot of guidebook authors as their propri- proprietary information those words that that they use to describe that route feel like their creative work how do you envision aligning um incentives to your incentives or what you're trying to build to the the person who's who feels like this is my information that I've worked you know hundreds of hours on over the last year to to create how do, how do you get them to to give it up and and give it to the community how do you see those incentives aligning yeah it's it's a difficult one um you know for example if i if i can compare a root to a like a file you know like a program, a, a code, you know, in JavaScript, whatever. 
Um, I might be the original author that wrote this file, you know, with the blue button. But then over time, someone gonna come in and they make a decision that we should make the button in red instead. So eventually, in and if over time, this the the page gonna be completely different than 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 the original version. So how do you reconcile that? Uh, you could have a moderation model where the author can be the moderator. Then I think that's what Mountain Project uh, is using, where that person will approve, will be the gatekeeper of the, of the changes, which is fine. You know that's one way to do it. Or you can have another model where it's free for all. You know everyone you you entrust the contributor. You know that will do the right thing. They won't come in and vandalize and delete the client, for example, or change the description to send someone, send back someone to go to a hard climb, a run out one. So yeah, so how do we balance that? Um, so I I I was inspired by uh, OpenStreetMap. It's a it's a crowdsourcing kind of like Mountain Project, but for like a Google alternative uh, crowdsourcing map. And yeah, so they have this flat permission model where anyone, you and I, can actually come in after this interview and change, you know, your your the street in your town or Interstate 70 in Colorado, you know, delete it. And 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 the data from OpenStreetMap is used by TomTom and Facebook and you know all the commercial entity. You know, how do they avoid? You driving on Interstate 70 and it's missing, you know. Yeah, so we have technology to take care of this. Well, even though they allow everyone to edit the map, you know, they don't take the current latest map and put it on your your car. You know, that, that's terrible. And for the same reason, you know, I can see opportunities in, in this open collaboration model where we can leave the basic information uh, the root name, the gray, the basic description on the on open beta or any other platform, and it's allowed the you know, author to overlay that basic information with their premium content. For example, you know, if I'm a developer, I could I could add, hey, here's some new routes. Um, you want to check it out? And you can tell them where to go, things like that. But then you can also have a, a premium version where you have better photograph, um, some beta, some backstory, you know. And and I think people will support it. Yeah. So I mean, the basic idea, if I'm getting it right, is that you have this information. You your 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 sort of uh, source has this information there. I could take it and put it into another platform, curate it. And then I would sort of cure the problem that I'm talking about, and I could maybe sell my platform. Exactly. Whether it's a, exactly. Whether it's a book, whether it's an app, but the basic information is there for me and the person next door. They want to create a different app, or they see my app as doing okay, but they can improve it and they can sell their app. This exactly. is all going to just be sourced from your material. And yeah. so I guess that's your that's your sort of. Uh, argument is, hey, this is here. Do what you will. If you find it to be crummy, then then cre- curate it and, and make it better. Exactly. You know, there are hundreds of cookie recipes out there, but you know, these people still make cookbooks. You know, with cookie recipes. So you're the you're the butter. 
and the uh, flour <laughs> and the and the chocolate chips and what other people do with them is is up to them. Okay, cool. I and and again, like I have spent a couple of years wrapping my head around this of what it is exactly that you do because I think the the reaction is like, well, I can go over there and get all this information and go out climbing for the day, and it's not it's not that exactly maybe that's in the future or someone else creates that. Yeah. I mean, if, if you just want to go cragging to an area you kind of familiar, then yeah, you can go on open beta or any old site, figure out where the, the cracks located, mm-hmm. you know, roughly eyeball, you know, there's 10 routes within my ability and then, yeah, sure. You go there, look at the route and climb it. Yeah. But if, but if you, a trap leader, you know, first time leading at your limit, then yeah, of course you want to, you want a curated guidebook will tell you how to rack up and where the cruxes sure. are and things like that, you know. I guess the, one of the questions, and it sort of is built on this philosophy thing around open source um, in general, but what's sort of in it for you in, in, you know, it's an extraordinary amount of work. You've, You've literally asked for emails and like in my world of giving away things on the internet, I don't get paid enough t- to empty my inbox of my emails is kind of my philosophy. Like, <laughs> you know, so yeah, you're giving away stuff on the internet for free in a sense. What's in it for you and you and know, the people I, who are, are sort of deeply involved? Yeah, I have no idea. I'm, I'm asking that question myself. Uh, <laughs> and I guess in a way I, I, I try to tell people, look, I don't know how to drill a bolt properly, you know, right. replace anchor and look at all the developers. They, you know, they like artists, they created all these climbing areas for we are to enjoy. And I don't know to, to do how to do any of that, but I do know how to code. And I'm in a, I was in a unique position, you know, two years ago when this whole legal issue happened. And I thought, you know, what's, What's the worst thing that could happen? You know, I, I, I can wake up every day and fire up the computer and work on a climbing project. You know, who, who gets to say that? You know, we all have to get up and go to work and, and I can get up and work on a coding project. And then I have, you know, a small amount of volunteers and, and every day when I wake up, I, I look at my emails and I'm receiving notification that someone submitting some code, you know, to improve a button or a page, and and that motive really motivates me. You know, I guess, I guess um, that's the answer. What would help you succeed? What do you What do you need from the climbing world to uh, help this project be a success? Yeah, so I'm 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 just um, I'm just calling all climbers, um, you know, to go check out the site and uh, openbeta.io, Indiana, Ohio. And um, upload some photos, um, tag climbs that are in the photo. And if you see something not working or you have idea for that you think is going to help the climbers, and just send us an email. And especially, uh, we need a lot of help with uh, coding. So you in the industry, um, your, your industry experience is going to be a huge boost to the project. If you're a coder... Front end, back end, yeah, check us out on GitHub. We have a couple of initiatives this year. I want to clean up the FA, the first ascensionist data, so that uh, we can better catalog, you know, all the climb, you know, like a I, IMDB website where you go click on a, a director name, you know, Steven Spielberg, you can see all the movies he's done. We'd like to be able to do that 
um, you click on a, a route developer, so an FA name, and you can see the route they've done, and maybe there will be ways to make it easier for for climbers to uh, to make a donation. Yeah, and uh, my last word to uh, route developers and guidebook authors, I just want to say thank you for your hard work. Without you guys, we wouldn't have this thing called climbing. You know, we all wouldn't be here. Yeah, I just wanted you to know I'm, I'm a supporter of your work, and please be patient with us. Uh, we'll f- still figure this out, and we'll hope that you will join us to help guide us to come up with a sensible solution, how, how we can support guidebook authors, route developers, and at the same time, be open to you know, new and innovative uses of climbing data, you know, whether it's for, uh, for profit, for commercial use, or for a coding student or for academic research. Lynn Hill is a climbing legend known for her first free ascent of the nose. Hashtag it goes, boys. Her new video series, The Fundamentals of Climbing, is now available. Check out the link in our show notes. So I had an idea for a way to start, and I was just thinking about the fact that it's 2023 this year which makes it 30 years since you first free climbed the nose. Um, yeah, it's crazy. 30 years has gone by. It's it's kind of strange for me too. Yeah, so that's like a big milestone, you know, 30th anniversary from kind of one of the most important ascents in climbing until, you know, still to this day. It's It's sort of one of those things that just gets referenced as this benchmark and used as a point of, you know, just a point of view or a point of reference on what can be done and barriers that can be broken in climbing. And, um, it, it remains that all these, all this time later. So I was just curious to hear what you think of that. Well, thank you for that. Um, I did it back in the day as a kind of, um, I guess a statement to show that exactly what you're saying. And I knew that it was going to surprise people, but I didn't have any reference for how hard it actually was. I just knew that I had to try really hard to do it. And also that there were no women doing first ascents that were significant in Yosemite throughout most of the history. There was Beverly Johnson who did a a first ascent on El Cap with Charlie Porter, um, the grape race. And she was my role model, uh, but she didn't do, you know, anything like first free ascent as her own thing, you know? So that was part of it. And just the history of Yosemite and, and the nose route was such a fascinating, just example of the, the evolution of the gear and the mentality. And I thought that that route in particular was a good route to tell that story of climbing and how free climbing really is, is the sport that well most of us participate in. And I, I think it's, uh, named free climbing that confuses people. It should just be called rock climbing. Mm-hmm. And people would, would have an idea of what rock climbing it is. It's not just aid climbing and it's not speed climbing, but it's the art of using your own body to get to the top of the route or cliff mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, Chris and I have been talking about, um, in some ways, what an outlier, you know, the, your ascent of the nose really was because it kind of, 
scared people off from trying it in a way, uh, for, for many years. And so I don't know, Chris, you want to jump in with what our discussion was? Yeah, we've, um, you know, we talked to Tomas Huber just the other day and we've been talking about freeing the Salafé, um, some of the style points and all that with those guys and Todd and Paul before them. And each time we talk about that, we find that there's this interesting thing, you know, well, one of the things I always say about the Hubers is they, they sort of kicked this door open that seemed to set off a real desire for a lot of other people to free climb on El Cap. And somehow your ascent didn't. Everybody just stood back and actually aid climbing became even more of a big deal. I know that because I was involved in that in the mid nineties, like the hard A5 kind of things. And I I was there in 96, 95, 96, and I just don't remember anybody up there talking about free climbing it. Most of the time, and, and this is the same with a lot of climbing, like a sport climb, a really hard sport climb might, you know, have the first ascent takes forever and then all of a sudden it gets done and then people repeat it fairly quickly. You know, yours was really different than that. And I, I, if you have any ideas as to why. I have a couple of ideas. Yeah. One is that because I was a woman mm-hmm. and, and also the fact that I'm small and I have small fingers, that was built up as the reason I could do it. And I think it's interesting, especially having gone back in 2018 and 2019, that's not true at all. Being small is an advantage in some ways, but it's also a disadvantage. I think more importantly, people were intimidated by the fact that if they were to invest all this energy into this climb, and really it comes down to two pitches, the great roof and the changing corners. And if you can't do those, well, especially the changing corners, it's very touch and go style. And if you don't do it, you've invested all this energy and attention maybe on your effort. And then to fail would be really difficult to accept. So I think that there was a psychological barrier in investing so much energy into that climb and then not being able to do it. It's also fascinating though, too, is like, you know, the Salafé had been freed in a certain style. You, not only did you free the nose and you, and you were the first person to do the whole thing while, you know, Todd and Paul were swapping pitches. Then you turned around and, and you ushered in essentially like speed climbing in the same year um, by doing it, or was it a year later? But regardless, you did another ascent where you did it in a day. And either one of those things left by themselves are world-changing. And you you just stepped up your own game within, you know, a, a very short time period after. What what was the decision there? I mean, you could have rested on your laurels and said, I freed the nose, go for it, everybody. But then you upped your own game. What was the thinking there when you did that? So I was living in France, which is not at all like Yosemite climbing, but I was in contact with Jean Afanasieff, who's since passed away. He's a French alpinist filmmaker, and he wanted to do <clears throat> some sort of film with me. And I thought, well, why don't we go back to the nose since we got like just a couple of photographs and really not much content. And this was before the internet and before this huge demand for content, um, which is another reason I think it went silent to answer that previous question Mm -hmm. that there wasn't a lot of attention on it. There was, you know, a little rah-rah in the magazines, but it's easily forgotten. It's not like today where it's it's a much bigger deal. (laughs) Yeah. I get what you mean, but we're never going to forget it. So So anyway, he asked me if this guy, Jean, if I wanted to do a film and I said, why don't we do the nose? But I thought, 
that's kind of boring to go back and just film what I've already done. Why don't I make it exciting and try to do something bigger? And that's when the obvious next step would be to do it all free in a day. And I wouldn't call it speed climbing because speed climbing is something I would be terrible at. Mm -hmm. I like to take my time and have my rhythm, uh, but climb you know, very carefully so as not to fall. That was my original goal, but I did fall at the changing corners. But I think in, in today's world, as long as you report what you do, your style and whatever, it's all fine. You know, people can judge you for not doing, you know, the perfect check mark. But as long as you report what you've done, that's to me the most important. But I decided to do all free in a day, which is much more difficult yeah. than doing it in like four days. And, you know, you could even stay up there with, you know, extra water and food and take a rest. Although, it's not that restful to be up on El Cap, even just chilling on a ledge. So I think having that goal really motivated me to get in the best shape of my life. And I knew that this was going to be like a big challenge because as soon as you get a little tired mentally and physically, it's hard to keep it together when you're 2,500 feet off the ground facing the changing corners where just one little millimeter off and you slip and you don't have that many tries in a day. If you fall more than like three or four times, you're probably psychologically going to be discouraged and physically drained as well. Yeah, that's uh, interesting to hear you say that because um, the the technical aspects of it are part and parcel of one of the things I really admire about your climbing style, which is you're just a technical master. I mean, you, you're very, uh, you can tell you just have a very attuned sense of where your body is and just you move beautifully, you know, over the rock. Um, yeah. I mean, I've seen you climb and rifle a bunch, so I can, I can say that with, um, some authority, but you know, you, uh, I'd be interested to know what, what you attribute that to. Is that something that you, that came naturally? Is this something that you've been really studying? Do you have mentors that kind of come to mind who helped you along that journey to be this, you know, technical climbing master? I think in the beginning, when I first started climbing, there was a certain amount of natural instinct and desire to climb, but I didn't really think about technique. I was just getting up the climb and, you know, just doing whatever would work. And then years went by and I ended up going to, well, first of all, I, I changed from California to New York, totally different kind of rock. And it was fun to travel on road trips, to be on limestone, sand, or not limestone so much then, but first granite, then sandstone. And, and then when I went to Europe the first time, that just opened my eyes to a whole new style of climbing. But more importantly, the competitions made me really consider what is efficiency and how do you, you know, perform with the least amount of strength and the most amount of precision. So I, I thought about it a lot and, and I watched people climb like, all the Europeans, you know, like Ed Langer was a beautiful climber. Backer was also a beautiful climber. A lot of, all of my peers really have their own style. And it's interesting to watch and, and see why it works and why it doesn't work. And then I started coaching and guiding and trying to explain this to people. And my way of thinking about it might be a little odd. You know, I'm a little like a Temple Grandin, perhaps, that I see a system that most people don't see. They just see the rock. And I actually did an interview with Chris Sharma many years ago. It's up on YouTube. And I asked him about his process. Do you 
look at the rock and see, you know, the angles of the holds and how you're going to use them all. And I think he does naturally because he's just so used to the the if-then scenarios because he's seen all the different, well, many different ways of um, putting together sequences with a, a given set of holds. But he's not the kind of person that's going to think about it consciously. But I think that if you're learning a language, you don't just listen to somebody have a conversation and then suddenly be able to do it. You have to learn grammar, vocabulary, practice the phrases that you hear and ask a lot of questions. And after a while, you kind of imprint something in your own mind and you know what a tree is and, you know, the different languages. So I'm, I'm used to kind of a, a certain way of learning for me. And that's why I put together this video so that I could show people like, here are the angles. So like when you hang onto a hold or step on a hold, you should be applying perpendicular angle of force, the law of perpendicularity, I like to call that. And that helps you direct your force more precisely. If you know it's in a specific direction because you've paid attention to the angles of the holds and the shapes of the holds, then you know exactly how to pull and direct that. So I, I break down all the different techniques on slab, vertical, corners, arets, roofs, and then talk about stalactites and pockets specifically with regard to limestone. And then the overhanging is obviously the most complex and physically demanding techniques because you're jumping and swinging and you're having to deal with momentum. So the more you can anticipate what you need to do with your body and where your center of gravity goes, the more efficient it's going to be. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say that, um, that technique, uh, education came through climbing lots of different kinds of rock in different contexts and, you know, doing competitions as well as just, you know, different rock all over the world, but then also moving from being just a, a climber and athlete to a teacher and under putting yourself in that mindset and perspective of someone who needs to learn how technique works and what good technique is. Uh, before we move on uh, to your video, which I know Chris and I are psyched to talk to you about, I want to just dwell on the nose and uh, that <laughs> this anniversary for for a little longer because, um, you know, as as we were saying, it's just this like um, it's it's bigger than the ascent was. It's become this emblematic thing that means means all these different things. And was that something that you struggled with in terms of? how people were kind of categorizing what this meant, like as this like, you know, glass ceiling shattering thing, or were, was that something you welcomed? Did you want to uh, think about this climb in those terms? Or was it just like this personal thing? I chose this route because of the history and the importance of that climb in a beautiful place, right? Yosemite is magical. And I think if you, if I look at my childhood growing up, and just remembering the comments that people made to me and calling me a tomboy. And I just kind of said, okay, if that's who I am, then I'm going to embrace that. And I think that was a strength for me to not feel bad about it, even though it felt a little bit derogatory to call me less than a girl. Mm -hmm. I'm a tomboy. But I knew that I obviously liked doing activities that were considered more male. And I'm glad that now there's so many young girls and women that are showing that strength is beautiful and, and we have beautiful bodies when we're fit. So I think that the culture has changed. But part of my motivation did have to do with um, getting rid of that stereotype and, and looking at 
activities and, and women in a different way. So that was important to me that that wasn't pressure. It's only, I guess, pressure to try to explain that and convey that. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm doing a documentary also with somebody and it's been, you know, several years we've been working on it and I'm not in a hurry to do it. I just want to make sure that I do it well. And, um, I went and interviewed Brooke Sandal, who was my partner in 93, 30 years ago. And he made an interesting comment like, yeah, it was just another rock climb. You know, he kind of was dispelling the importance of the climb, but then he got all teary eyed and he goes, Mm -hmm. he has two daughters. And he said, but she, she's the one that did it and, and spoke about, you know, the strength of women. So he, he appreciated that gesture but for him, it was just another rock climb, and he's done so many good routes in Yosemite and, and Smith and, and elsewhere around the world that for him, he didn't want to get stuck on just this one route. For him, it was enough to be a part of the experience and solving the problem and seeing that the route went free. So it was kind of an interesting twist on uh, the way he felt about it. Yeah, that's cool. I, that kind of resonates with me because I have two daughters and, you know, reading books with them. It is important if the main character is a girl and they'll ask questions about that. Like, oh, is this a girl? You know, if it's like a fictional, like mythical character or something, is this a girl or, you know, and it, they, you can see that they resonate with, um, yeah, with, 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 um, with, you know, female protagonists in, in the books that we read. Um, so I totally get that. Yeah, I think it's really important to have examples and role models. Mm-hmm. It gives the next generation examples and something to be inspired by. And so that's something that I'm conscious of. And I, I make a big effort to be available for that sort of thing. You know, you were talking about all these different places that you climbed, traveling to Europe, uh, Europeans coming back with you. Um, you were very much this, you know, bilingual bicultural person spending tons of time in France and tons tons of time in the US and and it's just kind of something that we kind of take for granted now that that's what like high end climbers do um but you were you were in this first group of that and I really have always felt that natural talent is is awesome but your I don't know your technique we were talking about earlier um you brought up Patrick and like coming from France I just always associated that flow style, this beautiful style that you have as being really at least um, encouraged by that climbing community and those people. I mean, the French were known for this, right? This beautiful movement on in the Verdun and all these other places. And uh, so would you say that like the global sense of your climbing has, has brought you to where you are as a teacher? Or I would say for sure, having the global perspective of mm-hmm. the different kinds of climbing, uh, especially on limestone, I think limestone does lend itself to that kind of flow you're talking about. Uh, but I do think just pushing yourself on a, a increasingly difficult climbs and trying to, you know, eliminate the inefficiencies and breathing and all the different aspects, it just really makes you become much more aware of the so- subtle details that are important. And the global perspective also is important for me just as a person. Being outside of America helped me look at myself as an American and see where we're all universal in our approach as climbers. And it was great to feel part of that community. And I really still do feel kind of somewhere lost in the ocean between 
the European continent and America sometimes because I feel like I'm a little bit of both. Not that I have to be in the middle of the ocean, but it just sometimes feels like somewhere in between European culture and mm -hmm. American culture. Mm -hmm. It's certainly easier to live in America if you're American, though. <laughs> <laughs> but the climbing, I would say, ultimately, I would rather be living in Europe for just the climbing. You know, you mentioned just second talking to Chris and, and wondering about his natural ability versus analysis. Like, looking back in your history, when did you, if you can think about it, an era, time, or an age even that you started to go from this natural climber to like backing up and analyzing what you're doing? Or were you always like that? And I think of, you know, the great Dean Fidelman photos from Josh when you were uh, amongst the Stone Masters, Little Lynn, like you, you talked back then about this natural joy that you had with climbing. It came from gymnastics and all that sort of stuff. Where, where did you start to switch over? Was it with competition climbing as well, the analysis? or? Well, starting with Joshua Tree, actually, right. the grid of the rock is really good. So you can friction in a lot of places that you wouldn't be able to on other types of rock. But the holds are subtle and you have to learn how to stand on uh, the smallest little nubs of rock. So I think that was an eye-opener back in the day. But I think that when I first started going over to Europe, I was probably about 25 and I didn't know anything about limestone and I was around a different, you know, group of people and they would talk about quiet feet and that really just meant precision and slow down and and make sure that you put your foot on a hold in exactly the right way. So I think that was probably the first time I really thought about technique in that way. And I remember people saying, oh, that Chris Sharma, he's so good, but he doesn't use his feet well. But I would argue that he is such a natural that he wasn't slowing down and placing his feet on the rock, but he was putting them where they needed to be, like posting against the rock. So he knew where to put his feet. He didn't pay attention as much maybe to make it look beautiful like the French, but he got the job done. And, and I think his choice to live in Spain and be around this culture may have also helped his technique because nobody would ever say that about him now. And I felt like I was probably accused of the same thing, you know, that I wasn't as pretty to watch. And sometimes in competitions, I would misread things and I would just be able to hang out forever because I have a lot of natural endurance. My weakness is more on the power side. Chris is known for also his power and dynamic movement and, uh, you know, that's how he was able to push the grades back in the earlier days of American climbing. So tell us a little bit more about this video series that you've uh, put together. Who's the, you know, kind of target climber that you're trying to reach? And what do you hope that they take from what, what it is that you've created? The target climber would be somebody who's maybe just getting into climbing. A lot of it will be over their heads and they won't know really why I'm saying those things. But as you learn more about climbing and you maybe take one or two ideas, it does make a difference. You start to see things differently. And I've had that feedback from people. They're like, wow, this just the simplest concept, the first one about vector angles makes a lot of sense. But I go from the vectors to opposition and people don't really talk about opposition, but when you plan a sequence, it's all about opposition. You look at the handholds and then you know by the shapes and orientation of where they are in a quadrant. If you say your, your center is the middle of a quadrant, where is the next handhold? 
And where's the next one after that? So you have to plan two moves in advance and that will inform which way you turn, how you're going to have your forearm, you know, which way, if it's a Gaston or, you know, a different horizontal, usually if it's a horizontal hold, your face straight again, you know, towards the rock. So these things are really important. If you know how to ask the right questions, you can problem solve just by looking at the face of the rock. But a lot of people will just look up and they'll, they'll see a hold and they'll just grab it. And then they'll, they'll think afterwards where to put their feet. But it's actually the opposite. You look at where the holds are, then you, you look where the footholds will mm. likely be that will be useful. You work in the backwards. Case of, yeah, it's a little bit backwards thinking. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping that it, it will sink in. And I, I really had a hard time picking the examples and then writing the narration that fits what you're seeing mm-hmm. so that you're actually hearing my, ver- my words and seeing what I'm doing and, and just taking that in. And it's, it's pretty dense stuff. So I would suggest people watch just like, you know, bits of it, like 10 minutes maybe, mm-hmm. and then go to sleep on it, literally. I think it works in your subconscious, mm-hmm. a lot of this stuff. Yeah, what you're describing is is interesting to the, the challenge of trying to articulate what fluid climbing is is um you know, it comes naturally to some people and and if it doesn't come naturally then they work at it until it becomes second nature and they don't have to think in quite those that analytical sequence that you just articulated. Um but I imagine that there's um a portion of, you know, very I guess it would be left-brained people who would benefit from hearing that kind of analysis and um, and description of just what it means to to move, you know, beautifully on the rock. I think for a lot of people, just watching it and seeing some of the concepts, like nobody really talks about this concept bracing. Bracing is just you know using your own body for leverage, like your forearm against your leg, or you could even use your head sometimes on an undercling or tucking your your elbow against your body, that's bracing. Um, one, two step is another, it's a concept. If you've got a foothold that's like higher than waist level, you can't just put your foot there and stand up, but you can do a one, two step. And so you just have to use your handhold so that you can leverage point one foot and then use that momentum to get your second foot up. So these are just ideas that people can use that may help them. But I do think that climbing is something that requires experience and you have to feel that your own center of gravity when you look up through your eyes at the rock. It's one thing to understand when you're watching somebody or watching the video. It helps to understand why somebody is either blowing it or making it efficiently. But you also have to practice having your own three-dimensional body awareness and what it means to be looking through your eyes at the rock. So it's going to take experience and it's going to take a little bit of um, conscious awareness on um, for moments, just fragments. Because when you're climbing, I think it's important to be in more of like a meditative state where you're, you're just aware, looking, see, noticing the holds and where they are and, and letting your brain do the calculations. Kind of like a Somebody who's doing a survey, they, they look at, through a scope and they see the straight line. You're kind of doing that with your body. And when I talked about my torso, I meant um, keeping it upright a lot of times. I mean, this is a general idea, but um, people will pick footholds that are maybe way underneath an overhang and they're, they're like this instead of 
a wider stem that keeps their torso more upright. And it's just something to think about when you're problem solving. Yeah, this is a bit of a, a, a tangent, um, but I, I recall watching a video that you were that you made or were a part of years ago on Climax Media about um, on-siting, and you uh, on-sited that route, the perfect child out in the Henry Mountains, which Chris over here knows quite well. Yeah, um, I've been watching that video over and over again. <laughs> Patience was like the main year. point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it was just such a beautiful video. I watched that you know dozens of times because it was. Uh, it's still on the internet. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Although I think it says it's Yosemite. But anyway. oh, really? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mike Call did that video. Yeah. yeah. And and people really do like that. And the patience part is relative to what we're talking about here because you need to to take in the information and give your brain just a moment to process it. If you just look at it and you're tired and you just, oh, I'm just going to go for it, nine out of 10 times you'll fall because you didn't look at the hold. And all it takes is just that moment to zero in on it, let your body know, you know the push-pull forces to do. And that's something, I mean, conscious understanding is sideways to, you know, the feeling of looking at the hold and doing it. I think of uh, guys like Dave Graham as another technique master and someone I really admire and just love his style of climbing. And, um, and he's someone who I also have had lots of conversations with about style and technique and whose, whose style is like cool. And like, who do you want to emulate or who do you, who do you think has like a unique way of moving with the rock? Who comes to mind for you with that question? Who's, who's someone who inspires you from a technical point of view, whether it's something that is unique or just someone who you think does it really perfectly? Boy, there's so many good climbers to mention, but um, I remember years ago when I was commentating for the X Games and Katie Brown was there and she had a lot going on and there's a book out if you haven't heard of it, um, Unraveled. And, um, I mentioned that she was one of the most talented climbers I'd ever seen. And I meant it. And I still mean it. She just knows where to put her feet. And she obviously was very light at the time, but she, she climbed like she didn't weigh anything also just in the way that she approaches climbing. So I think she's, uh, one of the most natural climbers I've seen with the level of uh, training that she did before on sighting, I think, uh, 13D back in the day. And a lot of people were like, whoa, that, that can't be 13D because she was just this small 14-year-old, maybe even 13. I don't remember how old she was, but pretty young. And just she wasn't even trying at her best at that time. And she kind of regrets that. But sh So she's one person that I think is really beautiful to watch. Um, Gosh, men, there's just, uh, you know, Yuji Hirayama, he's just another beautiful climber back in the day, just like he always found a, a unique and creative way of solving a problem. I'll never forget, he was living at my house and um, he had hurt his finger and I uh, actually just had a little patio and he took a few pieces of wood and, and made a little climbing wall and trained on that and won Arco that year, just from that he was so disciplined and able to push himself and i think it was just easier for him to control his efforts with the hurt finger but yeah ed langer was another one um francois legrand back in the day was amazing isabel patissier more modern people 
I think if you watch somebody like Robin, who was, you know, my colleague in the day, she's very precise and, and she just executes like perfectly what it is. She doesn't have the, the UG kind of flowy thing, but she's precise and efficient. So everybody has their, their way. I think that's subtly different, but all of the, the people that you see that are climbing the high, highest grade are really good. So I think it's just like their own personality. It's, it's their character. You just mentioned Robin and, you know, she was at least in the media anyway, was like, you know, you guys were the arch rivals in some ways, even though you were personally close. Um, but it was all set up with you and Catherine Desteville going back to the early days of competitive climbing. So we fast forwarded, you, you were pioneers in that world. And then, um, you know, what, what was your interest in investment in the, uh, the Olympics? You know, um, Robin's daughter was in there from Boulder. Talk a little bit about, about your Olympic experience watching this sport, you know, this, this part of the sport that you were involved in in the beginning, uh, sort of mature to an Olympic level thing. Well, it was really satisfying to see Brooke, who's a really amazing person. She's a great student. She's a very hard worker. She's nice person. And to see that, you know, my friend's daughter in the Olympics as the first person on the Olympic team was emotional, you know, almost brought tears to my eyes. And watching her perform was great the first round. And then when she she didn't make it into the uh, top four of the Olympics, and that was a little bit heartbreaking because I thought that her performance was better than the medal that she got just because of the way they scored it and, and just with the whole speed climbing and all of that. So it was a little bit disappointing, and I know she wanted to come home with a medal, but we were all proud of her. And it was satisfying to finally see from Robin and I paying our own way around Europe with really no support from any organization at all till now we have USA Climbing that's at least paying for the expenses of the athletes, and it feels like, you know, finally – America has some support because the Europeans, a lot of countries, not all, but they have an organization that pays for trainers and massage and everything. They don't really have to worry about it. And it's harder for us coming from America to go to Europe and then Asia and all these places when you don't have any support because it takes an incredible amount of time to train. How can you have a job and be available when your schedule is a little bit crazy. So I'm I'm happy to see that finally we have a real organization around climbing that supports the people that are inspiring the next generations. What was the snowbird thing in 88? Is that right? Yeah. So it's like a long time for this to to blossom into what you're talking about. And uh, you know, I that's still available on YouTube as well is the is all the footage from it was like a CBS, ABC. I can't remember which one, but you know they. I think put it was it on, ABC. Yeah, they put yeah. it on sort of prime time Saturday or Sunday sports spot, and that's all on YouTube. And it's it's a real time capsule, you know, of this slab that you guys are basically <laughs> climbing with this one little roof in it and stuff. And your performance at that was also, you know, it's pure gold. It's it was a it was an awesome moment. But we don't have to talk about that. But it's just the evolution took that long to to come to this place where these athletes are even just starting to be supported athletes. I mean, it's still, you know, they still aren't, it's not football, you know, basketball or anything like that. No, so. far from it. Yeah. And 
Enough of all the of how good shit is in climbing right now. I want to know about. <laughs> there's got to be some things that you're nostalgic about that are no longer part of the sport, or maybe some things that you might be critical of that where climbing is today and how it's grown. And what would what comes to mind for you in terms of what maybe some part of what piece of climbing that you're wistful about that is no longer really front and center in the minds of most climbers today. Well, our culture was, um, a lot of people use the word dirtbag, but I'm just going to frame it a little bit differently. We were the first environmentalists because we believed in less consumption and do more with less. And that was the way we approached climbing style. That's the way we approached our lives with humility. Bragging about what you did was the opposite of what we do. People would kind of sandbag each other and say, oh, it wasn't so bad. But they were just quaking, you know, like really scared on the route. But they would just pretend it was casual because the the way we climbed back in the day was we'd step up and know that, you know, we're going to try our hardest and we might get scared, but we're going to accept it and, and use good judgment. And I think just the idea of doing more with less was a huge part of what's different today. It's more of an urban approach. We have all the comforts, you know. A lot of material aids and and the social media encourages people to be a little bit narcissistic. I hate to say, look at me, look what I've done, and I understand it's you know part of the whole marketing thing. But I don't think you have to do that. I think that the culture could be a little bit blended with where we came from as climbers. So one of the other things is I think we're more isolated in our experience because. Once you add huge populations to anything, it makes people less connected. And so you might have different groups, I guess, that are friends. But back in the day, you know, there's this joke that Yvonne used to say that when you went to a crag, you could know who was there by looking at the imprints of the soles of the shoe in the trail. That means (laughs) there was hardly anybody there, right? And you would know them and they were all your friends. I still think that climbing is pretty friendly. If you're out at a crag, people are generally really nice. So I think that a lot of the aspects of climbing that I originally loved is still there. Nature is a big part of it. And natural rock is, you know, one thing that may be losing a little bit uh, to the gym crowd. And there's people that just climb in the gym and they don't really want to go outside because it confuses them. They're, they have to look at features instead of colors and you know, they have to make decisions. But to me, figuring out the sequence is part of the joy of climbing, just using your own interpretation for your body and uh, doing it differently than maybe, you know, somebody who's only like Robin's, she's probably the same size as me. She can reach a little bit further than me, but we climb things totally differently sometimes. So I guess um, one of the things that I would like to contribute in along this line is I want to build up my property in Waco tanks so that I can have climbing camps specifically for kids, um, teams, younger, you know, like teenagers and, and other people, whoever wants to come and, and have a group experience. Because I think that living with somebody, like when you live on a wall with somebody, you learn who they are so much better than 15 trips out on a weekend, you know, climbing for the day. So I think that having those experiences where you live together and eat together and, and chat and maybe 
watch videos of each other climbing and kind of talk about what you did or didn't do. I think that all brings people together in a really nice way. The social media thing's interesting because all this time I've been thinking about your video project, the way you've been talking about it. And, you know, we're such the pendulum right now is so far into training, you know, strength training and getting stronger. And the reason you're not sending is because you need to, to hang more or you need to, you know, and I feel like this will help in a sense. And maybe it's a little bit of an antidote to swing that pendulum back a little ways, you know, and it's, it's maybe, you know, in my own interest, because I'm always been a technique climber and, and I came from that generation to, I can't hang on shit. Right. But I can still climb. <laughs> and so I'm always, and that's <laughs> what I'm always telling people like younger, younger guys who like crush, I mean, just crush me in the gym and we go climbing outside and they get worked. And I'm like, yeah, there's still technique, like drop off the hangboard for a minute and think about the way your body moves and things like that and what you put your feet on. And so I don't know that it sounds like Lynn Hill has come with a bit of an antidote to that, or at least a push to get the pendulum, maybe swinging back to the middle um, towards technique. On that note, actually, you got um, a whole section in there about hangboarding. Is that no, what you're about no, to tell no, me? no, 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 the opposite. <laughs> okay, <good>. Actually, um, <laughs> I just wanted to talk about the mechanics of movement just right. to, to show what's good technique mm -hmm. in this video. And it just took a lot of concentration to get the video graphics because there's uh, the graphics are points, planes, vectors, and arcs. And those are on the video to show the different elements of like arcs would show more of a, a dynamic movement right. of like a limb swinging. But what I didn't put in this video was about the psychology and the, what goes on in the mind because I feel like that deserves its own video. I have about 15 minutes worth of content it's harder to find the actual footage to explain things like visualization or, you know, some of the other techniques that I've learned about neuro-linguistic programming that has to do with like visualization and, and making little anchors so that you kind of remember the feelings of when you were really feeling psyched to climb and strong and on that day. So you can kind of recall those things. There's a whole lot to the mental side, the affirmations that you tell yourself before you climb, and not just to you know tell yourself a story, but I mean really believing in yourself and believing in what you need to do on that particular climb. How to break down movement, sort of the top-down approach um, when you're trying to maybe try your hardest red point the first time you come to the climb. How do you approach it? How do you approach the cruxes, and how do you? link, say you've, you've done it with two or three hangs, how do you practice those transitions from not falling, but doing the move consistently through that section? So there's a lot to be said about the psychology as well. Yeah. And that's actually something I do feel like the world of climbing has started to focus on a ton just recently. Again, I, I you know, watching the trends, it's, it's, a, it's another way in which I think people are like, well, wait a second. This is not just about strength because if it was just about strength and it was like weightlifting, then it wouldn't be nearly as interesting as it all is and it wouldn't captivate us. And so the mind game thing has definitely been something that's push, also pushing that pendulum lately of getting away from the just pure strength training type stuff. So, um, you know, you've been climbing for a few years at this point. Um, <laughs> a couple, a couple few. How do you how do you keep climbing fresh or what does climbing look like to you today? And um, you know, it's 
how's this process of reinvention and reconnection with the sport that you've been doing for basically your whole life now? What does it look yeah, like? Yeah, why didn't you stop after the nose? <laughs> real quick, like, I'm I done, think, I did it, I'm good. This is the greatest thing anyone's ever done. Well, um, <laughs> I'm addicted to the feeling of climbing and and how if I don't do it, I think that my body doesn't feel right and, and then my mood, if I can't climb or do something, I mean, I have to do some activity. I like to skate ski too. That takes care of cardiovascular and, and just sort of that, a different kind of meditation. It's not nearly as interesting as climbing. And I think I'm somebody that thrives on novelty and newness and new roots and new experiences. So I like expanding, you know, where I climb and, and even here in the, this area, the front range, there's so much more for me to do. And I like that, that there's this, this vastness in these intricate areas that I haven't explored. So this year I'm working on a route with Sasha which was actually Sasha de Julian. It started out as um, she invited me to go to Mexico and I really couldn't go because my son was graduating from high school and my mother's husband was not doing well. And I was planning a trip to go see her and, and, and she was pretty stressed. And the day I told her, okay, I'm not going to go to logical progression. That's the name of the climb. Um, I heard him in the background and later that day he passed away. So it's really not a good time. And, um, I said to her at that point, I said, look, I'd love to climb with you. Why don't we do something here in our own backyard? doesn't require an airplane. It's you know something that you can do to contribute to the community because you, you should see all the crowds at, at the hard roots now. There's, there's you know some on each of these different formations, but not that many. So there'll be lines on these roots that are in that grade range, 13, 14, and there's just not enough of them. And Matt Samet's done a great job. He's always finding new routes to do, and he puts a lot of time into putting the bolts in. And I really respect that. That's a, a real contribution to people's experience. So that's what we're doing. We found a route to the left of this really great route called Ostelaweco. So we're calling it Vamos Chicas, and it's a three-pitch route. First pitch is not too hard, 5'11". Then it goes into what looks like 5'13", maybe in the 514 range on the last pitch, there's a route to the left of it called Made in Time that was only done by this guy Vasya. It's 14C. We're not doing where he went, but our route joins with the last bit of it. But it'll be something for those who um, really want to try hard and and you really have to get to the top if you're on the third pitch, because if you fall, you either have to boink up and get to the anchor or, you know, Try to carefully, you know, back clip in because you're out in space a couple hundred feet off the ground at that point. So it's going to be one of the most spectacular looking climbs and the climbing looks amazing, but we haven't been able to actually get our hands on some of the, well, the second and third pitches, um, not very much because we started the bolting process and then this bad weather came in. So we can't really get on it till the weather's nice. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, I've, I haven't climbed in the flat irons, but I want to check out some of those walls and look some, they look oh, amazing. Oh, so yeah. nice. So uh, why don't you tell people just where they can get your video and um, how they can support what it is that you're doing and, and learn from you? You can find the link on my website. That's the easiest way. So it's lynnhillclimbing.com. And that link will take you to Vimeo. 
And I think that's probably the easiest. I don't, I wouldn't suggest going to Vimeo because then it might be difficult to find. So just go to my website, click on that link and you can check out, I think you can check out the video on my Instagram. I wasn't able to figure it out because I'm not really good at this technical stuff with Vimeo. I can't figure out how to put the trailer up, but eventually I'll figure that out. But uh, <laughs> I think it, Does anyone yeah. want to get in touch with Lynn to, yeah. uh, you know, to, to volunteer some, some uh, video help? <laughs> Lynn at lynnhillclimbing.com. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure. We all know that the runout is the open source for unmitigated spray. But did you know that our Patreon rope guns get premium material, like our recent review of the classic Hollywood blockbuster, Cliffhanger? Love it or diss it, you've never heard a take like ours. And bonus to the bonus, you'll also hear from climber and erstwhile stuntwoman, Gia Franklin, who takes that ridiculous whipper in the opening sequence, the one that Black Diamond didn't want us to see. So find out how to get that premium content and support the runout at patreon.com slash runout podcast. On today's final bit, we bring you a tune from San Diego's Wanted Noise, a bunch of climbers and surfers who like to play distorted instruments. And according to the band, they'll play venues, bars, backstage, backyard, your home, garage, next to your pool, in your pool, or wherever the sun sets. Follow them at WantedNoiseCA on Instagram. And this little hot rod is called Cruise Control.
You've just finished another episode of the Runout Podcast. I'm Andrew Bisharat, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. And I'm Chris Caloose, and you can reach me at andrew at runoutpodcast.com. <laughs> Dude, come on. <laughs> because Chris at runoutpodcast.com is where emails go to die. That's true. We also have a Patreon that you can support our show at, and it's runoutpodcast.patreon.runoutpodcast.com. No, no, no. Patreon.com slash runout podcast. Yes. <laughs> if you dream of sending 514 every month for the rest of your life, <laughs> you should go and sign up at Patreon slash runout podcast.com. No, dot com slash runout podcast. Something like that. Give us some money.